Well, go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. This is your first time here. My name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I'm thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be starting in verse 1 this morning. We'll stay in verses 1 and 2 for a large portion of the sermon this morning. But of course, it is the new year. And in January, we typically like to start our year talking about the issue of life change. Uh, really, in the new year, we kind of cultivate the soil of our lives. We kind of till it um, to be more kind of receptive to dealing with the issue of change, to talking about change. And of course, that's because in the new year is when people uh, start to try to get their lives together. It's kind of where you set a vision for the year ahead. Many people make resolutions. I don't know how many of you uh, made any New Year's resolutions. Uh, many people lie about making New Year's resolutions. So many people don't want to admit that they realize that they need life change. But some of you have made resolutions that you want to lose 20, 30, 40, 150 pounds this year especially after the holidays. Uh, some of you uh, kind of want to just exercise more, get in better shape. Some of you made resolutions that you're going to get a degree. You're going to start getting some education. You're going to finally deal with your debt. You're going to get out of debt this year or you're out of debt. And you're like, I'm going to kind of grow some, uh, some savings this year. I'm going to fix something that is wrong with my life. And so many of those resolutions that I hear people make and that even I make myself, the question that we have to ask ourselves is any of the changes that we're seeking to make in our lives, are those the changes that God wants to make? Are we focused on the reality of the change that the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to make in my life this year? We set ourselves on paths of change, but the reality is that each and every one of you need to get a vision for how discipleship is going to change your life this year, how you are going to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if you are a Christian, it means that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're trying to get closer to Christ. And if you're trying to get closer to Christ, then intuitively it means that you're trying to become more like Jesus in your life. And I don't know if you know this or not, but that's going to involve change. I would hope that none of you are so audacious that you would both say, I need to become more like Christ and I don't need to change. That means that you think you're perfect and I've got news for you. I don't think any of you are. I know that I am the furthest thing from perfect. Real change starts with the work of God in your life through faith in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the reality of Scripture teaches us that attempts to change fail when you just look to exterior things. The greatest hope for your life is weight loss, and that's a hopeless life. If the greatest hope for your life is a change in income or a change in the numbers in your bank account, then it's a hopeless life. The change that we really need goes far deeper than anything the exterior tells us about. Yes, the exterior realities of our lives often give a window into the problems going on in our lives. But if all that you deal with is the exterior of your life, you're never really going to grow. You're never really going to change, at least not in the way that God has designed for you to change where the gospel of Jesus Christ is concerned. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to talk ultimately about the changes that need to happen in each and every one of our lives for us to become more like Jesus Christ. We've called it Converge 24 this year, and that term converge means to meet at a point or to come together and unite two things. 
It's a term that I use all of the time, at least in-house for the staff, to explain a lot of the vision for our church. Each week in this series, we're going to bring two terms together that show how you can initiate and further the change and growth that God wants to work into and out of your life. These changes are, yes, for His glory, but the big thing that you need to understand, I think the hardest thing for some people to accept is that these changes are for the glory of God, but they are also for your good. The changes that God tells us about in Scripture are going to give us a better life than we would have apart from them because God designed you. He created you. He knows what you exist for. He knows why you are here. He knows the purpose for which you were created. And He knows the life that is lived by His design is the one that is for your good. But the changes that are required are tremendous. And not just that, I think sometimes when we think about Christianity, we only think about one change, and that is the change that happens at the moment of regeneration. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But that's just the first in a series of changes. There are a tremendous number of changes. But what I hope to convince you of this morning is that none of those changes are going to happen by accident. All of the changes after regeneration, where faith in Jesus Christ is concerned, are only ever going to happen by choice. You have to choose to change. I want to look at what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, I want to pause there, because what he's talking about there is tremendous life-altering change. But he actually talks about two types of changes in verse 1. Number one this morning, I hope you understand, God wants to change you more than you realize. God wants to change you more than you realize. Almost everyone underestimates the change that they need. There is a great possibility, more likely than not, that you are underestimating the change that God has to work into and out of your life. And I think that's for two reasons. First, you don't know about some of the changes yet. You're ignorant of them. You haven't grown to the place where you understand every place that you need to change. But secondly, it's also because so many people think about change in the wrong way, at least the change that God wants to work in our lives. We believe that because of the way salvation begins, that we are passive recipients of change. When the scripture presents to us the reality that actually after you come to faith in Jesus Christ, that's when God puts you in the game. You are now an active participant in the change that God wants to make in your life. I chose Romans 12 for two reasons. First, because it is a popular text that many people, especially Christians, are familiar with. And second, because it speaks to both the radical change that following Jesus entails And it also speaks of your participation in making decisions that lead to the real life change that God doesn't request of you. He doesn't ask you if you are willing. No, if you read the text, God demands this. God says without exception, this is the Christian life and there is no other. He begins by making an appeal. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. And that's the first indication that I know he's talking about me being active. 
Because he's basically saying, I'm pleading with you to do something. He wouldn't plead with me if I didn't need to do something. All of the Christian life ultimately is going to be centered on the choices that you make, either to obey God or to disobey God. And here, the Apostle Paul is saying, obey God. But then he says, you are obeying him in the effects of what he's done to you. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by what? The mercies of God. That's the gospel. He's saying none of what I'm about to talk about can happen without the radical change that God makes in bringing death to life through faith in Jesus Christ. And here lies the first issue I see in the lives of so many where we get it wrong. When you think about how Scripture describes the change that the gospel, just the act of coming to faith in Jesus Christ makes, it's profound. Ephesians chapter 2 describes it as going from death to life. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a big difference between those two. Death and life are very different things. The beginning of Ephesians 2, he says, And you, like the rest of mankind, were dead in your trespasses and sins. In other words, before you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you were spiritually dead. There's no life in you. There's nothing you can do to help yourself. There's nothing you can do to change your situation. You are dead. Dead people can't help themselves. They're dead. But then he says later, but God, why? Because of the great love, because of his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, did what? Made us alive together with Christ Jesus. Boom. Death, life. Big change. At least it should be. Has the gospel, though, made a visible change in your life? When you think about the word picture that Ephesians chapter 2 draws for us, when you think about what the Apostle Paul is saying here, he's saying, I beg you because of the fact that you've been taken from death to life, that's the mercies of God, present yourself. And so the first thing you have to understand is that without death to life, you can't present yourself. You can't sacrifice anything if you don't have faith in Jesus because you didn't bring yourself to life. God gives you life. He regenerates you. He makes you alive. And if a change as drastic as death to life has taken place in your life, can we at least meet and agree that that type of drastic change should at least be noticeable in some way? That if you were dead, you are alive, there should be an indicator that life is happening in your body. Many people profess, profess faith in Christ, claim the benefits of Christ, and then just go about business as usual. You think of Christianity as more of a destination than a lifestyle. And so your understanding of faith in Christ is, well, because of my sin, I'm going to go to hell. And so if you had Apple Maps or Google Maps open, destination hell. That's the way you think about your life if you are apart from Christ, and it's the truth. But then the way that you think about you coming to faith in Christ is that you reprogram the coordinates of your destination and so heaven has been opened for you. You will not go to hell because you've come to faith in Christ. But your journey to get there, you have no intention of changing your path because it's going to lead to heaven. Scripture 
nowhere describes following Jesus Christ anything like that. Talks about life change. Talks about not just destination change, it talks about path change. Jesus himself even said, wide is the path that leads to destruction. Narrow is the road that leads to the kingdom of heaven. And so we have to understand that the implications of the gospel on our lives are to be applied from the moment of regeneration throughout the rest of our lives. Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet describes what faith in Jesus will be like. He says, and I, God, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now think about that. We've got death to life. Now we have heart transplant. And what do we know he means when he's talking about a new heart? He's talking about the core of who we are. He's talking about what it is that defines my life before it was stone, not receptive, not active. Now it is flesh. It is working. It is alive. Have you, are you experiencing that type of change? See, the fact is that to diagnose that is difficult because so many of us don't think about our life as one in which we take inventory of the radical change that faith in Jesus Christ has made in our lives. But that is exactly the way that Scripture deals with it. That's why it uses the word pictures that it does. But the truth is the validity of your faith isn't really proven in a moment. The validity of your faith is proven over the long haul. I've been evangelizing longer than I can remember. You say, how is that possible? I was raised in the church. I make no, no qualm about that. I love the fact that I was raised in the church. I've somehow, and people think this is odd, and I've said this before, I've loved every part of my life. I've had a great time. It's been a, it's been a great deal of fun for me. Some people, I'll tell a story, and they'll be like, that doesn't sound very fun. I say, I got a great story out of it, though, didn't I? That was fun. <laughs> but so we had this thing called bus ministry, and if you were a fundamentalist back in the 80s, it was great and terrible. I can't explain how. It was both things at the exact same time. Right? And so the way it worked is, is that you tried to grow your church by growing your children's ministry. And so Saturday, we would have what was called bus visitation. I've got more time now because we're only two services. <laughs> and so we would go out on Saturday morning and my church would unleash just an army of people to go door to door. And what was funny about what we did, and you don't realize this until you're an adult and you're like, huh, that's just like a scam. But uh, they, so it would be weird if grown men go to your door and they're like, hey, can I take your kids to church tomorrow? All right. And so I think they knew that that would be weird. It's not weird when a 10 year old with red hair does it, though. All right. And so what they would do is we would drive around neighborhoods and I would go up to the door and I would go up to them and I'll be like, hey, you know, we got this great church. Can you I want some friends? I think some of them felt sorry for me. Now, the hole in this is I'll still to this day, I can't answer. Why didn't we ever invite the parents? I have no answer for that, but we only invited the kids. All right. And so every Sunday morning, I'll go. We, I mean, we'd load buses and buses full of kids, bring them to children's church. And I still know some of these people to this day that I personally led to a prayer to accept faith in Jesus Christ. They professed faith in Jesus Christ. And then we would have children's church and we would just see so many people raise their hands. Yes, I prayed to receive Christ. I personally prayed to receive Christ 37 times. <laughs> At least. Because I mean, you get the right guy up there and he'll get you sweating. All right. Like, 
I don't know if it stuck last week. I better get it right. And so sometimes I will talk to some people that I grew up with and that, that, that either prayed to receive Christ with me or, or in my church or at my school. And they're not following Jesus in any way. They're not involved in a church at all. They wouldn't even tell you that they think that the Bible is God's word or that they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ or that they know him or that they're following him. But then you get to destination. They say, oh, I'm going to heaven. And I'll say, why? Steve, you were there. I prayed a prayer. You see, the problem wasn't evangelism. That's necessary. Regeneration, death to life, born again. That moment is necessary for you to have life in Jesus Christ. The issue is that people need to understand that life involves a long series of growth that doesn't happen in that moment without which you can have no certainty that your faith in Jesus Christ is real. It isn't that they lost their salvation. It's that they never really got saved. Professing faith is the beginning. The life that comes after it is absolutely necessary. The truth is that regeneration precedes what scripture defines as a life of not just experiencing change, but pursuing change. Are you experiencing that? Are you pursuing that? A simple example of this idea is Philippians 1.6. The Apostle Paul writes to the church of Philippi. He says, I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And that tells us two things. There's a starting point but then there's a process to get to the end. He doesn't say God began it and finished it that day. What does he say? He says, I am sure that God who began this work, regeneration, you coming to faith in Jesus Christ, I am sure he will bring it to completion. In other words, there is a journey. There is a path. There is a life. There is growth. There is more change than I can quantify that will happen in your life if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. That phrase, bring it to completion, is a concept that God wants to change you over the long haul. That means that if you are not continually growing, and I'm using growing in the sense that it is synonymous to life change, as you age, and can we just admit that we have a problem? That there's a problem if you aren't growing as you live your life as a Christian, there are going to be changes that should take place over years of living that show the work of God in your life. I came to faith in Christ when I was 12 years old. I remember it. I remember the day that I realized the weight of my sin and the glory of the cross in bringing me forgiveness. I remember that day. That was over 31 years ago. And I can tell you right now that God isn't done changing me. Some of you believe that you have aged into a bracket where you're not changing. 
Friends, you don't want to say that about yourself. You don't want to believe that about yourself. You don't want to say that Christianity becomes at some point stagnant in its application. No, it is dynamic. That means that God is not done changing Steve Gentry until I breathe my last breath that by his grace, I will grow to know Christ more for the rest of my life and I will grow to become more like Christ for the rest of my life, no matter how long that may be. But be careful because real change happens from the inside out. I've never seen the movie Titanic, which I'm very proud of. Like some people think that's odd. And I'll lead with that. I'll be like, what am I the most proud of? Never saw Titanic. Yes. It's in my eulogy. I've already written it. Somebody's going to talk about how proud he is. He never saw it. James Cameron didn't con me, guys. I don't know why I think that's so funny. I can't. Some of you are so baffled right now at why I'm so proud of that. And you just got to get in here to understand those things. <laughs> but history actually tells us about the Titanic that one of the scenes that's in that movie where there's a band playing while the Titanic sinks, that's true. And I think that is the type of change that some of you make in your life. You make noticeable changes for people to see, but the fact is on the inside, nothing's really changing about you, and it's as helpful as playing beautiful music while the ship of your life sinks, or as helpful as it would be to move the furniture in your living room around while your house is burning down. It's a waste of time. But some of us do that. We move the furniture around in a chaotic life on the inside to either lie to ourselves or lie to others. And I want you to understand that the real change that God wants to do is going to start really on the inside, and then it's going to work its way out in your life. Look at what Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 26. He starts out by saying, you blind Pharisee. Now, I want to pause right there because... In Scripture, blindness isn't always, and it rarely is, talking about literal blindness. He's not looking at the Pharisees and saying, you have vision problems. No, he's saying, you are spiritually blind. Throughout the Scripture, especially in the Psalms, if you read them, it talks about the way in which you see your feet and your path is through what? The Word of God. And so for Jesus to look at anyone and say, you are blind, what he's saying is you don't understand the word of God. You can't even see the word of God in the spiritually dead condition that you are in. So what does he say? You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. What he's telling the Pharisees is you are putting lipstick on a pig. You haven't changed the fact that it's a pig. Some of you try to dress up the outside of your life so that you don't have to deal with the chaos that is actually going on within you. God wants to take your spiritual death and turn it into spiritual life. He doesn't want to hide your spiritual death by a bunch of behavior modification. God wants to change you at the level of your motivations and desires so that they will work themselves out through your actions. 
Friends, there is no real growth that happens through spiritual hypocrisy. Don't rearrange the furniture in a house that's burning down. And so what do you do? You understand, number two this morning, yes, change does happen at the level of your choices. But where do your choices come from? Life change does not happen without your participation. That moment of salvation that I talked about, yes, completely the work of God. It's a gift given to us. It is something that is done to us. That is what I mean when I talk about regeneration. Death in sin to life in Christ. It is 100% the work of God. At that moment... The Spirit of God makes us alive in Christ and then He indwells us. Christians have the Holy Spirit living in us and working through us. And this is where uh, Reformed theology becomes somewhat unhelpful. Some of you are super smart, uh, book-wise. And you haven't applied any of it to your life, so it's a waste of time. Knowledge not applied, I don't want to talk about it. I'm like a 32-point Calvinist at this point, all right? I've even made up a few points, all right? I just throw them in there because it feels good, okay? But what we do sometimes with the sovereignty of God is we go so overboard with the sovereignty of God, we become fatalistic in our approach to living and making choices in life. And we will try to disguise our bad choices under the sovereignty of God. And it's like, even if God's sovereign over your bad choice, you should have made a better one, dummy. And also, I remember the moment I came to faith in Jesus Christ. I just said that. But you know what I mean when I say that is I remember the moment I chose to become a follower of Jesus Christ. It was a choice that I made. I wanted to get saved, so I did get saved. I chose it. Now, what I didn't know at the moment is that at that moment, God had been pursuing me and the Holy Spirit took the scale of sin off of my eyes that was blinding me, made me alive in Christ Jesus through regeneration, and then I was like, yes, Jesus but here's where reformed people go wrong. You think that because it was monergistic, which is a theology word some of you know, it was the work of God alone, you think that the born again experience defines the rest of your Christian experience. Justification doesn't define sanctification. Without justification, sanctification is pointless. But your sanctification, you are an active participant in it. God is working through your choices. So the moment I came alive in Christ Jesus, I received the Holy Spirit. I came alive. Now I have the privilege, potential, and responsibility to make choices under that power. I think some of you are passively waiting for God to change you. But that's not how it works. God empowers you to get active, to make choices that bring him glory. Look at what he says in verse 1 of Romans 12. By the mercies of God to what? Present your bodies. Who presents? You. He doesn't say, 
It's an out-of-body experience and God's just going to do it to you. No, he says you do something. You get active. You present your body to Christ as a living sacrifice. This is my favorite part because this is a juxtaposition in my mind between living and sacrifice. When I think of sacrifice, what do I think of? I think of killing something. This is the beauty of the Apostle Paul. He calls it a living sacrifice. In other words, when I come to Jesus Christ, he takes my death. And the only potential I have after that is life, 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 life. So my sacrifices are life sacrifices that just give me more life. And so I live as a sacrifice to God, which is holy and acceptable. That's worship. And so you have to choose to live a life of worship. Friends, we must choose to change all the different aspects of our lives that do not line up with God's revealed will in Scripture to line them up with God's purpose for our lives. And that is what worship looks like. Some of us treat Worship, as though it's hard to quantify, as though it's difficult to define. In some tribes and denominations, we treat worship like it's some kind of LSD trip. It's like you're dropping acid. You don't know what's going on. You're in the spiritual realm. Friends, that's not the way Scripture defines worship. Because some of you, you get off base and then you begin to treat your relationship with God as though it is just a series of you seeking emotional highs. And you're like, for me to worship, i got to feel a certain way. That's not how sacrifice works. Certainly not what's printed in Scripture. Scripture shows us that enduring in faith and growing in my relationship with Christ involves just as many seasons that are completely dry as it does those where I'm feeling that emotional high. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts, longs for you. Some of us think that's just a cute song from our childhood. Have you ever actually thought about what he's saying? He's talking about deep thirst where you are dehydrated and you're just begging God saying, God, make me feel something. If you follow Jesus for an extended period of time, friend, you will go through long seasons, sometimes many of those seasons where you feel like you are in the middle of a desert. You're like, God, I feel nothing. And the validity of your faith is going to be proven by whether or not you endure it. If you want to reach the mountaintop, Scripture doesn't lie. It doesn't hide this from us. If you want to reach the mountaintop, what do you have to endure? The valley. No one has ever reached the peak that didn't endure the valley. Sometimes it's how you know you're on the peak because you're like, whoo, I'm out of the valley. Friends, that is difficult. And I can't even express to you the amount of life change that is necessary. But that is what discipleship looks like. You are not a passive onlooker. You are an active participant. The fact is that some of you are not experiencing the power of God in your life because you are literally not choosing to experience the power of God in your life. Obedience requires a willful choice, just like disobedience does. Repentance, though 
Turning from sin is about choice. In verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. Every choice you've ever made has been rooted in your mind. Not conforming to this world, being transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do you know what he's describing there? He's describing the activity of repentance. He's describing what it actually looks like to turn from sin and present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. And he's saying, here's where the battlefield is going to be for that. Choice after choice after choice after choice after choice after choice after choice is going to determine whether or not you can, and here's where he ends it, discern the will of God. Stop treating the will of God as though it is some type of mystical portal that you haven't been able to experience yet. He talks about it in his word. The will of God is always found at the center of obedience to the word of God. And so if you are obeying his word, you are discerning what the will of God is because you are repenting of your sin. You are turning to faith in Jesus Christ and you are doing it over and over and over. You are not passive. This is something you pursue. You have to choose it. I see so many just going along with whatever is going on. Whatever new thing this world has to offer you is what you pursue every year. But friend, are you pursuing the transformation that God always has to offer? I mean, the frank truth is that most people are more concerned about looking good than changing in order to be good. Ephesians chapter 5 is sobering. It says in verse 15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. What do you use wisdom for? Making choices. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You do not have forever to see how God will work in your life. Some of you, you're not repenting, you're not changing, you're not growing, and you lie to yourself over and over. There's always tomorrow. Until there isn't. As I've said, I've been in ministry for many decades at this point. I was a youth pastor for eight years. And I can think of off the top of my head five of my teenagers that are dead. And here's the deal. As the youth pastor, I was always older than all of them. They've gone on. One, just this past year in ministry, Chose to end his own life. Two people that I graduated high school with died with quick illnesses. One an aneurysm, one they never know. They never found out what was wrong with her. And I understand that as I get older, that's just going to domino. <laughs> hey, did you hear? Frank died. Oh, but the deal that you have to understand is none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. That must be sobering. That's why Paul writes right there. Do you see the words that he used? He says, the days are evil. 
You do not have the time that you think you have. Do not wait until tomorrow. Make the best use of the time. It's a command. And so how do I make the best use of time? He says, be wise. Don't be foolish. But intuitive to be wise and don't be foolish is going to involve a sobering moment where you look in the mirror and you have to admit to yourself, I am a fool. Friend, you are the sum total of every decision that you have ever made and you are nothing more than that. None of us are. So what do you do? Larry Crabb, my favorite Christian counselor, said this way many years ago. He said, repentance means to accept the truth that life without God is no life at all. And therefore, pursue God with all the passion of someone who has been rescued from unimaginable horror. Do you live sober like that? Do you live reminding yourself, I was a sinner who deserved hell, was headed to hell under the wrath of a judgmental God forever, and he pulled me out of the pit because he sacrificed his own son for me? Do you live with that reality of the unspeakable horror that your sin deserves and the glorious life that he's given you? If you do, you will pursue him above everything else. And that is the inside out change that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 23, when he says, clean the inside of the cup first. It cultivates a life of making choices that initiate changes that God wants in my life. So what is it that you are choosing in your life? Are you choosing changes that just move the exterior furniture of your life around? Or are you changing your internal life? I'm talking about motivations, desires, your vision for why you exist, your emotional state, your personality, on and on. What are you pursuing? And can you even be honest with yourself about that? Every one of us continually has sins we need to turn away from and righteous wisdom from God that we need to choose to live for. And many of our sins are internal. And because of that, they are not obvious to everyone around us. You can hide them pretty well, can't you? But here's the truth that you need in your life. You can hide a lot from other people, but you will never hide a single thing from God. You need God's power to make those choices, friends, and your choices will determine your life. Look in Proverbs chapter four. Here's the key to life. It's not complicated. And I, and I love the way that Solomon writes it. He says, get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget, do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake wisdom and she will keep you. Love wisdom and she will guard you. And I, this is my favorite phrase. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. What? You know what he means when he says that? He's saying this isn't complicated. He's saying if you want to be wise... Go get wisdom. 
Because if you are alive through faith in Jesus Christ, you know what you have? You have the power of the Spirit in your life. And you know who will be faithful to get you wisdom? The Holy Spirit in your life. The book of James says the power of the Holy Spirit is so severe that if anyone lacks wisdom, ask God and He will give it to you. More than that, He already has in His Word. It's not a mystery. Stop pretending that your bad choices that are ruining your life are a mystery and you just can't figure out how to make better choices. No, that is you abdicating responsibility from your life and trying to pretend that you are some type of victim who is powerless to control him or herself. Own your life. You are the one living it. Whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly. She will exalt you. Insight will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. When you choose to be stagnant, and you do choose that, when you choose to be resentful, when you choose to be angry, when you choose to be lustful, when you choose to be envious, when you choose to be deceitful, when you choose to be manipulative, and on and on, you are choosing foolishness. And you need to own that. You are choosing to turn away from wisdom and pursue foolishness. And do you know what you're going to get in the end? Foolishness. Your choices determine your changes. Everyone changes over time. Every single one of us. But those who pursue growth in God's righteousness are the ones who receive the crown and set the standard from God. You will never outgrow your choices. Some of you spend so much time resenting people that have wisdom and make wise choices that you have created a prison of foolishness around yourself. And you have spent more time blaming wise people than owning your own foolishness. And you're not changing because of it. Number three this morning, if you want a different life, make different choices. It's not complicated. It's difficult. It's not complicated. Your life is the sum total of your choices. Change in the Christian life is progressive. We are all the sum total of the choices that we have made. Choices that align you with God's purpose for your life age you gracefully. Choices that align you with sin, guess what they do? They age you horribly. Some of you are not aging well because you want to foolishly. You've got this thought that you're going to prove that you can make foolish decision after foolish decision and still somehow make it through as though wise people are just looking around. I am so confounded how you keep making terrible decisions and keep winning in life. Who are you trying to prove it to? What are you trying to prove? Can you even quantify it? I can tell you honestly that God doesn't give us His Word so that we can prove Him wrong somehow. God is right 100% of the time. The only thing that you might prove is that you were never His child to begin with. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 is both a promise and a warning. 
He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. It is a promise to those who sow well. You sow well, you reap well. But it is a warning to those that rebel against the design of God. If you sow foolishness, you will someday reap foolishness. It will not turn out well for you. You need to turn around. You need to repent of your sin. You need to trust Christ. Life change isn't about showing how much better you are, friend. Life change is about looking at the great power of God's gospel to bring you from death to life. And then looking... And living out the gift of grace that he has empowered you to live for. Friend, it's about revealing in God's greatness and love to bring us back to life can actually be displayed to the world around you. When you have life, you will choose life. You will choose to live to pursue life change because that is the path that God has set you on. Hebrews chapter 3, we get another sobering reminder. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be any, excuse me, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, the first two words, a lot of times we pass over them because I don't know specifically why they chose to, for the ESV, translate it that way, but that's not really how we talk. When we want somebody to be careful, we don't typically look at little Johnny on the bicycle and be like, take care, son. If you do, all your neighbors think you're a weirdo. All right? And so those two words can also be translated, see to it, be vigilant, be on the lookout. It's talking about inventory on your life. He's saying, be vigilant, brothers, just in case. Some of you have an evil, unbelieving heart that will ultimately lead you away from God. What he's saying is that be careful just in case your choices actually reveal to you you're not a Christian. He's not talking about losing your salvation. Hebrews 3 is actually a chapter where the rubber meets the road of discipleship. What he's saying is is that throughout your life of following Jesus, there will be mile markers. There will be ways to diagnose and evidences of your growth in faith every single day. He's warning you, be vigilant about looking at the evidence of God's work in your life to be sure it is there. Because when you live like that, your choices align with the reality of God's work in the gospel. Proverbs 16.3 is a simple text, but I think it sums up what we're talking about so well. He says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Now, you may look at that and be like, what is he talking about? He's basically saying, when you live God's way, it's all going to work out in the end. Because God doesn't take L's. God doesn't lose. He has a 100% success rate. He has a 0% failure rate. And so if you want a life that is going to prove successful in the eyes of God, you will live a life of pursuing Him above absolutely everything else. Now the world won't always call you a success. Unbelievers certainly won't admit that you are living the best possible life 
But what Solomon is saying right there, the one who designed life, the one who created your life, the one who gives purpose in life, and the one who saved you from the pit of hell, he will win. And when he wins, his children win. That is what it means to present yourself as a living sacrifice. That is what it means to be on fire for God. In Jesus, we don't sacrifice ourselves to die. We don't lose just to lose. We sacrifice our lives, our plans. And yes, we sacrifice our work because in it we find life. And that is how you have the vision of God. That is how you discern His will. That is how you pursue constant growth in the Christian life. Friends, choose to change or you will choose to waste your life. That's the reality. A few application points this morning. First, admit to yourself the deep changes you need. Some of you need to go home this afternoon. You need to spend time in prayer and you need to pray something you've never prayed before. It's something that I pray regularly. The Holy Spirit's in here. I talk to him. And I tell him, I say, Spirit, examine me. Show me my sin. Because I need to get real honest with God about where I'm failing to sacrifice so that I can present myself, so that I can repent, so that I can grow. I need change every single day, and so do you. Secondly, look internally at how God needs to work in your life. I am convinced that so many of you are moving furniture. You are modifying behavior, but you're not dealing with the inside. You're not dealing with your emotions. You're not dealing with your personality. You're not dealing with why am I the way I am? Are you a mean person? I am. And so I have to sit down sometimes and say, wow, what a world. Holy Spirit, show me why I'm acting the way that I'm acting. What's going on in my heart? Why am I not treasuring the gospel? Friend, the only way to get real about yourself is to pray through the power of the Spirit. Thirdly, I could preach a whole other sermon right now. You don't want me to. Make different choices. Make different choices in order to see real change. Yeah, there's a lot of times for some of you, You've been taking a left, metaphorically speaking, your whole life. And you ask yourself all the time, I just don't understand why I'm not happy. I just don't understand why things aren't working out for me. I don't understand why people don't treat me better. I don't understand this, that, or the other thing. You keep turning left. Just tomorrow, turn right. Maybe. Maybe. Repent regularly of real sins. Don't pray this flimsy prayer, Lord, forgive me of all my sin. How many times have you prayed that? And yet you keep sinning. Now, when you ask the Holy Spirit to examine sin, the crazy thing is the Spirit reveals to me how dirty I am. But He shows me specifics. Oof. And I have to talk and deal with the specifics. And then finally, commit to the work of the Lord. And he will give you glory.